Welcome to Function. I'm Anil Dash. On Function, we talk about the way technology impacts the world, impacts culture and society. But nothing is more dramatic in impact than when we talk about democracy itself. So this time out on Function, we're talking about voting machines. They are the technology that enables our votes to be counted and registered, and in a lot of real ways, enables our voices to be heard. The wild thing about voting machines, though, is they are some broken-ass technology. They're old a lot of times. They don't run real well. The people running them don't always know how they're supposed to work. And even in the best case, they don't always have a paper audit trail to check whether a vote was actually counted. It's a mess. And then add in security concerns. The truth is a lot of voting machines, even new ones, are pretty easily hacked. And whether that's by the white hat hackers, the good guys who like to find security issues, or foreign interests that are trying to affect an election, a lot of folks know their way into these voting machines and can skew the results in ways we might not even be able to detect. And that's important context to know because there's a lot of hand-wringing, especially in right-wing media, about voter fraud. The truth is voter fraud statistically doesn't happen. What can happen, though, is election fraud or election tampering. You see, there's all the usual mechanisms of disenfranchisement where black and brown communities are targeted for everything from regular old voter suppression like hampering early voting, shutting down polling places, or even just spreading misinformation about voting access. And then on top of that, you add in really heavy burdens around voter ID and registration, and all these things add up to almost insurmountable barriers. But we make that even worse if voting machines themselves are faulty. There's nothing more basic in disenfranchisement than if your vote isn't counted. Like some of you, I'm old enough to remember the election of 2000. A big call to make. CNN announces that we call Florida in the Al Gore column. This is a state both campaigns desperately wanted to win. Stand by. Uh, CNN right now is moving our earlier declaration of Florida back to the... The presidential election of Bush versus Gore. George Bush, governor of Texas, will become the 43rd president of the United States. Where it all came down to that big recount in Florida. And voting machines played a central role in that entire drama. As Florida's elections for senator and governor remain unresolved, Governor Rick Scott has dropped his motion to impound voting machines in Broward County. The wild thing is, 18 years later, states are still having the same kinds of issues. We saw this in the midterms in the 2018 elections in Georgia and Florida. The vote count continues in Florida, always a key state in presidential elections, and this year the scene of tight races for governor and the Senate. Georgia's high-profile governor's race is still undecided. Republican Brian Kemp holds a narrow lead over Democrat Stacey Abrams. She told supporters overnight she will not concede. We cannot seize it until all voices are heard. And I promise you tonight we're going to make sure that every vote is counted. And let's take a closer look at that election in Georgia. Stacey Abrams challenging Brian Kemp in the race for governor of Georgia. Now, before Election Day, there were all kinds of classic disenfranchisement efforts, trying to keep voters away from the polls before the election even started. But you get to Election Day, and the voting machines come into the mix as one of the biggest barriers. There were reports of there not being enough voting machines in polling places, some voting machines not working, and even some machines that were registering votes for Kemp even though those voters 
had voted for Abrams. Georgia NAACP is filing a complaint about touchscreen voting machines in four counties. And according to this complaint, several voters say they tried to vote for Democratic candidate Stacey Abrams, but the machines instead chose Republican candidate Brian Kemp. The NAACP of Georgia filed a complaint against Brian Kemp because, you see, Kemp wasn't just a candidate for governor. He's also the secretary of state. That means he was the one overseeing the election and people were reporting irregularities with voting machines across the state of Georgia. In this case, when technology doesn't work, it's not just an annoying bug. It doesn't mean there's just something wrong with an app. When a voting machine technology doesn't work, it means somebody's voice isn't heard. Right? This is real human impact. The whole idea of democracy is that you have to be heard. But if we're depending on technology that isn't secure, can't be trusted, isn't reliable, then that entire promise is a lie. A little later in the show, we're going to hear from Maurice Turner. Maurice works with the Center for Democracy and Technology. And if we really want to understand how voting machines work in the real world, he's the perfect person. He's been on the ground with poll workers, making sure they know how to use this kind of technology to register everyone's vote. And he knows about every problem that can arise. But first, speaking of somebody like myself, who's actually created technology over the years... It seems like all these issues with voting machines should be something we could just fix. Like, can't we just upgrade the software or something? But it turns out fixing the technology of voting machines is pretty damn hard. My guest Matt Bernard explained that voting machines are probably one of the toughest kinds of technologies that you could build these days. Matt is a PhD student, and he teaches a class about election security at the University of Michigan. And he knows top to bottom how voting machines work. Matt and I talked before the midterm elections, but the wild thing is everything that he predicted about the risks of voting machines going wrong, we saw versions of that happen on election day. He even talked specifically about the risks of the voting machines in the state of Georgia. Matt, welcome to Function. Hi, thanks for having me. Before we get into uh, you know, the challenges we're facing today, I want to back up a little bit and give people a little bit of context about how we got to where we're at. So, you know, obviously, you know, you go back far enough in time and voting is sort of a thumbs up, thumbs down thing. You move on to paper rolls. Uh, and then we start to get to the sort of, you know, age of automation and things. What, what's a little bit of the background that people who are thinking about these issues should know about how we ended up with, um, you know, the kinds of voting machines we have today? Yeah, so, um, you know, a lot of uh, current law, you know, state law around voting came to the fore in the kind of mid 20th century with uh, lever voting machines. And, you know, we also began to see kind of the first wave of computer voting machines, um, most of which are gone now. But the, the real kind of touchstone event was the 2000 election, you know, Bush v. Gore, the Supreme Court case, um, and the butterfly ballots in Florida. In 2002, kind of in response to you know, the, this outdated technology that wasn't really usable and very visibly caused major election problems. Congress passed the Help America Vote Act, which was $3 billion that, that went to states so that they could replace their either their old lever machines, their punch card machines, basically all their old uh, voting equipment. And so there was this big push to modernize voting. And um, there were no good modern voting machines on the market at the time. So there was a, a mad scramble by a bunch of companies who, you know, some of whom had built voting machines before, um, like ESNS, um, Harden or Civic, those kinds of companies, and some of whom had never built voting machines before, like Diebold. 
And so they basically kind of pushed out these systems that that just met the bare minimum requirements. You know, it was, it was basically a rush job, and jurisdictions all over the country bought them. Um, you know, they were selling like hotcakes. And then as time went on, you know, people like people people in uh, you know the computer science world and other um, policy tech kind of spaces started you know kind of scratching their heads and looking at these machines a little bit more closely and realizing wait a minute you know there's no encryption on these there's no record you know if if the software gets hacked there's no way to know there's no record or anything like that so maybe we need to take a step back and reevaluate and you know that that started in i guess about 2004 um, and had been basically up to 2016, no one cared, you know, it was shouting into the void. Um, and then we, we saw in 2016 with, you know, a major presidential candidate saying basically that the elections were going to be hacked. For the first time, we saw significant actions by a uh, nation state uh, to attempt to uh, infiltrate and disrupt an election. And so that kind of brought a lot more attention to it. Um, but, you know, the issues that we're talking about have been around for almost two decades now, and they've been identified for almost that entire time. So it's almost there's there's a reaction to the hanging Chad moment, and everybody says we got to go all in on on becoming digital and 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 turning these things into you know electronic systems instead of the mechanical systems that preceded them, uh, and then probably you know no small part of that too is that yeah it's 2000 election, but it's also you know the the sort of internet gold rush and everybody saying you know we 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 have to get more digital and electronic in everything we do. And, and 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 all of the states sort of make this move at the same time, and they, they have the uh, the funding to say we're going to buy these new machines. Yeah, that's correct. And I am obviously a little biased because I, I, I do think that these machines are bad and that they need to be replaced. But to the credit of the vendors who, who made them, they did improve in several areas. If you're, if you're a disabled voter, they made your life a lot easier. Um, if you're an election official, they made your life a lot easier. So it was easier to administrate and, and uh, give people who, who maybe wouldn't have been able to vote before an easier, an easier path to voting. Um, but it did create a, uh, an awful lot of problems as well. One of the things you talked about, and I, I, I confess, I think like a lot of folks, I probably don't know the names of all the vendors of voting machines, but 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 there's a number of companies in this space, and and it sounds like there's sort of two camps. There's the people who are like, well, we've always made voting machines, and now we make you know electronic ones, but we're we're sort of modernizing and upgrading our stuff. And then there are folks who were doing other stuff, making ATMs or 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 whatever, that said, oh, well, this is this is pretty similar. Maybe we can do voting also. Is that right? Yeah, that's about right. They they are legacy companies that have built voting machines for decades, and then you know a significant fraction, especially now, because you know deep a lot of the companies that kind of got into it and then went out of the business, um, like Diebold, they've basically all either been pushed out or gotten out of the market. So now what we see is these legacy companies, as well as a few newer specialized companies. Okay, so that's an interesting sort of split where you have the old players, you have the new upstarts. There were the the in between the folks who dabbled in this. I think Diebold is probably the highest profile of all these because there, there'd been a lot of uh, online blowback about you know perhaps some of the some of the choices they made in designing their systems. Right, the Diebold machines are the most studied machines um, in in the literature and in, in the the research, just because partially because they were so widely adopted. You know, the AccuVote TS was the most widely used voting machine I think up until two thousand eight. Um, and it was just so unbelievably broken, you know, nothing, n- no reasonable. <laughs> it wasn't person. the most studied because people like the colors of it. Exactly. Yeah. 
no, no reasonable person would look at that machine and think, oh, this is, you know, I'm comfortable running our elections on this. And it's worth noting that machine is still in use. You know, the entire state of Georgia uses that machine. Let's talk about the problems that, that happen. And I want to start at a couple levels. First of all, it, just the process, right? So if you're, if, you're, if you're voting, you've got a couple of choices. Uh, and the problem space is basically you want to make sure, you know, the voter, the person is, you know, who they say they are and they're on the rolls and allowed to vote. And then you want to have the right list of candidates in front of them. And then you want to record which ones they voted for. And then want to make sure that record is there for people to be able to count up. Is that pretty much the the problem overall? Yeah, I mean it's 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 a good deal more complex than that, but that's sort of the general shape, right? Um, there there are other considerations. You know, you you know, in the U.S. we have the Americans with Disabilities Act, so you have to account for people who can't see or can't you know don't have fine motor control, um, things like that. Um, there are you know some states you know, have expanded the vote. So they have absentee, you know, no reason absentee voting. There are lots of states that do postal voting. Um, but in general, yeah, you're right that, that it is, you know, figuring out who can vote, figuring out what they can vote for, figuring out how they can vote, and then counting up the votes. Obviously, we care a lot about election security and the privacy of the vote and all those other sort of related issues. But, you know, even acknowledging, obviously, it's more complicated than that simple flow that I, that I outlined. But it doesn't sound to me like any individual piece is pushing the boundaries of what computer science can do. You're not inventing something new here. You're just assembling pieces of problems that people have solved before. Well, it's interesting you say that because that's actually not true. Voting is arguably, you know, at least as far as I'm aware, one of the hardest computer science problems. Um, you know, we have cryptography, we have sophisticated design techniques, we have, you know, secure software and, and networking and all kinds of, you know, all of these different fields, all of them are involved in voting. And so oftentimes many of these fields don't actually interact with each other. So that's that's one kind of way in which voting is, is a little bit more nuanced and difficult. At, at the core of the problem, right, we have this need for secrecy, right? You shouldn't be able to tell someone how you voted because otherwise they might buy your vote, your vote or they might break your kneecaps if you don't vote who they wanted you to vote for. Um, but at the same time, we also have this really strong requirement of wanting to know that our elections are correct. You know, I want to know that my vote was counted. And, you know, there is no other problem in computer science that I know of or in really in 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 general, that that has this tension between the need for secrecy and also the the strong desire for verification. You know, people will often say, you know, well, I bank on my smartphone. Why can't I vote on my smartphone? And and it's it's exactly that, right? You aren't harmed if someone knows what your account balance is, right? They can't, you know, maybe they can like try to rob you, but they can't um, they can't disenfranchise you as a result of that. Um, in voting, if someone knows how you voted you know, there are all kinds of things that could go wrong. There, there are many different ways that you could lose your, your voice. Right. You could lose your job. It could ruin Thanksgiving. Like all kinds of things can happen. Exactly. And, you know, not only that, right? Like the government could fundamentally grind to a halt because, you know, we can't decide who should run it. Um, so the, the stakes are incredibly high. And there's this tension between privacy and, and verifiability that, that really doesn't exist in any other problem space. So there is something different about this. This isn't like building an ATM. This isn't like building, you know, any other sort of machine that we interact with, the cash register or something like that. This is a, a unique problem space. And it sounds to me like one of the challenges here is you've got different kinds of technologists that are having to sit down and work together, people that may not have ever met before or collaborated before. Yeah, that's correct. And I mean, 
honestly, you know, a lot of major advances in cryptography have been made as a result of trying to solve the, the voting problem, you know, not to get too technical, but things like mixnets didn't exist until someone was like, well, how do we let people vote securely, but also verify their vote and not, you know, get compromised. And it's, you know, technologies like that um, were basically invented to try and solve this problem. Like you mentioned, there is this interplay between various fields um, of, of computer science, psychology, political science um, that interact in voting in ways that they don't otherwise. And that also creates a lot of friction. The more technical side of things, um, we can we can build a, a voting system that is you know secure, more or less. It, it may be the case that no one can use it. And if no one can use it, then no one can accurately vote. So you know that's that's a whole problem unto itself. Okay, so now I am 100% convinced this problem is hard. This is a, this is tough. Yeah. This is not a casual thing. And and actually to some degree that means that some of the proposals of like, well, we should just open source it. Now we need that for accountability, but that doesn't solve everybody can just contribute every coder in the world is going to help write this thing. Well, and and you know, open source is an interesting thing. I, I think it's good to encourage more transparency in the election. But open source doesn't solve any of the problems about having malware on your voting machines. You know, it's great that you have this pristine code base on on the internet that anyone can look at, but there's no way to verify that that code that you've written is actually what's running on the machines. Um, so, you know, there there are other you know other steps that have to be taken in addition to sort of people's first hand, uh, sort of naive solutions like open source, like blockchain. You know, there, there are things that may work okay with the problem, but they don't solve the problem. You know, a trait of this problem is that everybody's got a stake in it. Everybody's got an opinion on it. Everybody has that limited experience, hopefully, of at least having voted. And that's unusual in that most enormously complex problems, like if we talk about a moonshot, everybody's not like, well, I've been to space and here's what my experience <laughs> exactly. was. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So let's get into sort of where we're at today. If we take, let's take Georgia, right? There's there's so much going on, um, you know, around, you know, various you know, efforts around voter suppressions, all these things. So it's a very, very fraught environment. And they have got what sounds like the worst machines in place already. Um, talk me through what are, what are some of the shortcomings and the problems about what's there today? Um, there's <laughs> there's a lot. If, if people are particularly interested, I've actually written an article um, going into very you know fine detail about this. But um, Georgia, right, we'll show we'll show that out in the show notes. But give me give me the the, the greatest hits or the, the greatest misses of, of of what's bad here. So Georgia's a weird state in that they are, as far as I know, the only state that is entirely centralized. That you know the state of Georgia runs elections. Um, in most states, you know, Texas, where I'm originally from, every county is responsible for their elections in Michigan and Wisconsin and a couple of other places. It's even down to the township, you know, city level. That is good and bad both, right? There are efficiencies to be made when you can consist, you know, have consistency across your state. Um, but also it creates a huge vulnerability. If, if something goes wrong at the Secretary of State's office, it affects every voter in Georgia. You know, they're using these AccuVote uh, TS machines that are my advisor, when he was in grad school, broke the AccuVote TS machine, and you know, a decade ago, and and this is still being used. Um, they haven't really been updated, and we have numerous problems that have been reported. You know, poll tapes that don't make any sense, voters who say that they got the wrong ballot. Um, there, there's all kinds of 
like weird things that have been going on there. And there's no way for and serious problems. Yeah, serious not, problems. Not, not, right. not like a little display problem, like a real. Exactly. When it was my turn after waiting three hours, I had difficulties with casting my vote because the machine kept glitching and it was pausing and freezing. So then I asked, I asked someone to tell me what to do about it because my vote wasn't letting me cast. And they told me there was nothing that we could do about it. Or, you know, people go in to the to the precinct to check in to vote and they're they're told that they're in the wrong precinct but the person who lives with them is in the right precinct right it just makes no sense and again it goes back to these sort of black box voting machines that no one can look at and you know they produce election uh, election night results instantaneously in most cases um but you know in the past few elections you know fulton county had major technical problems and they couldn't get results out it took you know there was like a three-hour delay there's all kinds of issues you know um the way that the machines get programmed is a, you know, really appealing vector for malware. If you wanted to infect these machines, you know, you could sit on your couch in Russia and infect every voting machine in Georgia. And that actually raises a point. So let's not to hand wave away the complexity of this, but let's imagine that you could fix every bug in these machines. Like you, you sit down, you write all the software and you make all the updates. Is it like my iPhone? Can I just like download an update and all the voting machines are updated and now we're good? No. These voting machines are running on an operating system that came out in 1999 and hasn't been patched since, I don't know, 2012 or something like that. And, you know, to George's credit, for the most part, they aren't connected to the internet. So you can't just download the patch. They do have some features where you could, you know, if you stick a memory card in it, you could update the, you can flash the firmware and, and update the software. Again, going back to this sort of path of vulnerability, if I'm an attacker, I look at that and say, oh, great, I can convince them to try and plug my software into every one of their machines, right? You know, there's no real guarantee that what they're doing um, is correct. And, and again, like, you could write the best software in the world, you could you could have perfect security on these machines. But at the end of the day, it would still be impossible for a voter to know that their vote was counted correctly. Because there is no independent record. There's no way there's nothing that anyone can look at and say, beyond the shadow of a doubt, yes, this is this is what this voter voted for. This is, you know, we can count all of these ballots independently and we can guarantee that the election result that was produced by these machines is correct. It's just not possible. So so that's sort of the state of the art in in the state of Georgia and in many other places across the country, maybe even, you know, around the world. We we look at this issue, although I think it probably is particularly worse in the U.S. than in other environments. Is that right? Um, it depends. Um, you know, uh, Brazil uses basically almost the same model of machine that Georgia uses. Um, it, it's a lot. It, it's more customized. But um, there are a couple of other places in in the world. India uses um, electronic voting machines. Um, but for the most part, most of the world votes on paper. You know, there there are places in Africa where they do vote on paper, but they have other issues with, um, you know, voter registration and, and authentication and stuff like that. But um, in most places, yeah, you're right that the the problem is a little bit less bad. Um, one thing to note is that U.S. elections are actually very unique um, because we have this sort of strange top-down federal system. Um, our ballots are very very complex. Whereas in Europe, if you're voting or Canada or wherever else, you vote for basically a party. Like you have one choice on your ballot, and that's it. In the U.S., we have sometimes up to 80 races on a ballot, which makes this whole problem even worse. This is an interesting thing because what we're talking about is you you don't have that audit trail. You do have all these known issues. That's the ones we know about, let alone the ones we don't know about. It's at almost every aspect of, of the process. So maybe you're not seeing the right candidates. Maybe you're not seeing the right geography. Even if all of that is right, maybe your vote's not properly recorded. Even if it's properly recorded, maybe it's not properly reported. 
uh, and, and on and on down the road, right? Like all those things are sort of connected in together and that's the current state of affairs. And then even if all that is right and, and could be fixed, not necessarily can you get that fix out to all these machines. So there's just, it's sort of like this, this you know, nested set of problems. There's just inside each, each problem is another different problem. So uh, now that we're sufficiently hopeless and we've seen, we've seen how dire the circumstance is, are there any places in America that have started to turn the corner on changing this? Yeah, so um, most places actually. There, there is a lot of good news. Um, you know, we saw a widespread adoption of sort of DRE, uh, sorry, direct recorded electronic voting machines like these black boxes that that are used in Georgia in most places in 2002, 2004. And since then, they've been slowly kind of the, the curtain of DRE has receded. Um, so, you know, 70 plus percent of U.S. votes are now cast with a with a independent paper record in, you know, unfortunately we don't actually look at those paper records in a way in most places that, that can tell you, you know, useful things about the election, but there are a few States that do Um, Colorado. This election cycle is, is rolling out a statewide risk limiting audit Uh, and a risk limiting audit is just a statistical way to check. You can count a handful of ballots and basically ensure that your um, that the result reported by the voting machines is correct. Um, so Colorado is doing this. Rhode Island is doing this. I think California just passed uh, a resolution to do this. I don't know if it's this year or next. Um, Michigan is is experimenting with some different audit techniques. There are lots of states that are doing this. Um, so you know, there's, so California is not still DRE. I think there are a couple of counties that have DREs with paper trails. Um, which are not ideal, but they're at least a little better than paperless. But in most counties in California, it's either vote by mail or or optical scan, handmarked right. paper ballot. A lot more people seem to be aware of the risks and dangers around our current, you know, voting infrastructure, and and there's at least a casual awareness, even if they don't know the sort of the technical considerations. And we now have some, you know, proof points to be able to look at and say, well, we can get better. We can make something that is more trustworthy and it's not science fiction. It's something that's happening in reality. We have vendors that are uh, incentivized both from the fairness and, and, and the sort of civil justifications of it and also because they can probably have a business opportunity that they want to do the right thing here. If I'm a voter in the 95% of uh, American jurisdictions that doesn't have you know, a system that runs as well as it should. What are the steps I can take? Are there resources I should be looking at? That's like this is this is what to tell my elected officials. Are there groups I can join with to to organize around saying I would like to fix this issue? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, you know, there are lots of you know audit the vote kind of groups out there. As far as the individual is concerned, you know, find who runs your elections. Find you know whether it's a township clerk, a county clerk. And go talk to them, you know, ask them, you know, what is your system like? What can it do? What would it take for us to do secure audits? Go talk to your state legislator and make sure that they are aware of the issue because, you know, the state legislatures are the ones who, who actually can pass the laws that matter. You can also call your Congress people um, in, in federal, you know, U.S. Congress. They passed a $380 million, uh, basically, uh, supplemental package to HAVA this year that is released, you know, every state now has something like $10 million plus to update their voting equipment with a, with an emphasis on audits. There are a couple of, um, bills in, in Congress, the secure elections act, which I think might be tabled or dead, but there's always a successor to that, that, that also promotes the use of better standards, better auditing practices. Um, so, so there's that. 
And at the end of the day, if you, you know, if you're just coming up against a brick wall for all of this, you know, encourage candidates to run on a platform of election transparency, right? Like that's the, one of the things that's going to help um, move us forward is electing people that, you know, rewarding people for, for having that stance and, and getting them elected. Of course, you know, most candidates, once they get elected, they look at the voting system and say, well, it elected me. So how bad can it be? Um, but hopefully if we get, you know, more commitments on transparency and auditability, that'll help. And then also, you know, the other thing that I, that I should add is there are some sort of, I don't know if I should call them extreme, but um, last ditch efforts that can be made. So, you know, the recounts in 2016 were an example of this. Taking a, you know, whatever existing policy and legal infrastructure that there is and pushing it to the limit to make sure that we can actually look at paper ballots and make sure that our votes are counted correctly. Ballots are public record. Um, you can submit a Freedom of Information Act request to your township or county clerk um, and look at the ballots if you want. Um, it'll cost you a little bit of money, but um, you know, in the absolute worst case scenario, um, it's also a viable option for making sure that your vote was counted. Great. Well, Matt, that was a specific and detailed and thorough list of things we can do. And it gives me a little bit of hope to see that we've seen some progress and also that you have come up with so many ways for people to be able to follow through and uh, and continue that progress in their local area. And it couldn't be any more important an issue uh, for people to work on. So, uh, Matt, thank you for joining us today and for giving us a little bit of insight into how we might be able to fix some of the infrastructure around voting. Yeah, for sure. And, and like I said, you know, um, this is not a problem that is going to be solved by everyone throwing up their hands and saying, oh, I don't trust the system, so let's stop using it. Um, it's a problem that's going to be solved with more people participating, you know. It's easy for me to say that, you know, our voting system is bad. We can't know if our votes are counted and all that. But the only real way to guarantee that your vote doesn't count is to not vote. All right. On that note, I'm going to beseech everybody to follow your advice and your urging. And uh, thank you again for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. We'll have more with Maurice Turner of the Center for Democracy and Technology after the break. Welcome back to Function. I'm Anil Dash. Now, earlier, Matt Bernard laid out the tech concerns around voting machines. But next, we're going to turn to Maurice Turner. These days, Maurice is the senior technologist for the Center for Democracy and Technology. But back in the day, Maurice started his career as a poll worker. He was on the ground in the voting precincts, working with the poll workers, making sure every vote got counted on Election Day. Election Day is one of the longest days uh, I think that anyone can have in any sort of a working capacity. The work starts at about 4.30 to 5 a.m. Uh, where people are waking up and uh, the volunteers need to make sure that they are on site and that all the equipment is being checked to make sure that it's working properly and then it needs to be set up uh, and then verified again that it's working properly. So that way when the doors open at 7 a.m., Everything is ready to go, and the voters experience as little friction as possible. I talked to Maurice about his days as a poll worker and how those experiences help him with the work he does now and ensuring that voters can have some confidence in the current elections process. Maurice, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So I want to talk about your personal story. You were 
once a volunteer poll worker. Yes. So I've always been interested and involved in politics. I started off uh, as soon as I turned 18, registered to vote, uh, started working for local campaigns. And then in about 2004, um, when I recognized that there were some problems that were going on with new voting machines in my county, I decided I needed to make that shift and actually uh, volunteer to be a poll worker so I can see firsthand how new technology is being introduced into our polling locations would have an impact on the way that people vote. And was there a sort of galvanizing moment where you saw something happening with, you know, election cybersecurity or voting machines where you sort of said, oh, man, I, I got to really pay attention to this? For me, it was that moment, just like with most people, where we saw the impact during the 2000 election, where ballots themselves could have a major influence on the election. You know, we've seen those pictures of the, the hanging chads being inspected and then talked about. And so after that, uh, electronic voting machines were put into place across the country. And from the start, they were having problems. And so that's when I decided, okay, I have a technology background. I understand this stuff. I'm pretty good with people. I understand the way that um, elections are run. So let me see if I can try to help out, at least in, in my own county, in my own backyard, to see if there can be a better way to use this equipment because so many of the volunteers that we have um, are older, they're dedicated, but they just don't have that level of comfort with new technologies when it comes to new machines being put in place and having voters change the way they cast their ballot. There's that stereotype of the poll volunteers in most places being this, you know, older person, maybe usually an older woman who's very well-intentioned, you know, been in the community a long time, maybe not living at the cutting edge of technology with the latest, greatest smartphone. How accurate is that stereotype? It's an accurate stereotype, and there's nothing wrong with it uh, because there is that level of expertise in the voting process that is so valuable. Uh, the challenge is that when so many new pieces of equipment and new procedures are put into place, it can be difficult to translate to an older generation um, when it comes to being able to get them comfortable and up to speed to the point where they can exude a level of confidence that is translatable to the voters. Because the last thing you want is to have a voter have a little bit of difficulty when they're trying to cast their ballot, and then the person who's supposed to help them it doesn't feel comfortable even providing that help, and they themselves need help. Walk us through a typical day. Like, what, what are the tasks that, you, that end up in your lap when you're trying to help people? Election day is one of the longest days uh, I think that anyone can have in any sort of a working capacity. Um, it really comes down to, throughout the day, making sure that the machines are working. And that in itself can be a challenge. So if a voter is having a difficult time understanding how to cast a vote or maybe how to verify their vote, um, they might call for some assistance. And there might also be some legitimate breakdowns of the equipment. Um, so if there is a problem with the power cord or there's some other sort of connectivity issue, you know, that needs to be uh, diagnosed there on the spot. Uh, using the training materials that are available, and then, if necessary, calling the headquarters to find out if there's someone else that can come out and provide that additional level of technical support. At some level, it's almost like when your copier machine breaks down at work, right? Is it plugged in? Did you turn it on? Or when the printer doesn't work, right? Like there's some part of this that is just getting this old machine to work. That's exactly it. It's an old joke, but it's a true joke. You know, the, the first question that any good tech support agent will ask is, is it plugged in? Uh, we actually uh, heard about that over uh, this most recent 2018 midterm election where the power cords 
did make it into the box, so they weren't there at the polling location. It seems pretty basic, but sometimes it really does come down to very simple questions and simple fixes. Has there been particularly frustrating or absurd examples you've seen out in the field or heard of uh, when, you know, what were the reasons behind why some system, some voting system didn't work? New York was probably the biggest and clearest example of what happens when the machines themselves don't work. Uh, So there were cases at some polling locations where due to high humidity, the ballot paper itself uh, was actually so swollen that it was actually jamming up uh, the voting machines. And that's a case where, you know, we probably should be able to expect there's going to be some high humidity in some places. And so that shouldn't be an issue. Um, But it also highlighted the issue that you know, in New York, they require a certain ballot style where every single contest needs to be fully visible to the voter. So it turned out they actually had an oversized ballot. I believe it was 31 inches long, uh, which to me seems like poor design coupled with mm, iffy machinery and an unusual uh, weather event uh, made it for a perfect storm of jamming voting machines causing long lines and resulting in low voter confidence. So, you know, it's funny because there's this interesting, you know, combination of, you know, people fearing outside interference, foreign interference, this, you know, these very sort of dramatic international global stakes. And then at the other end, this very, very, is it plugged in? Did the paper jam? You know, did you push the right button? Like this very, very almost mundane set of problems and yet they're connected right they 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 both are part of the the reasons people have such strong feelings about access to voting now right and it's the local election officials who were in charge of running their elections uh, that are really caught in the middle because they know for a fact that they're is no such thing as a perfect election there will always be some issues that pop up some that are expected, some that are unexpected, but they need to be planned for. So they're really good about having backup plans, but they also need to be aware of the fact that they can be targeted by a nation state actor or even a domestic actor interested in changing the results or simply interfering with the election process. And so we are really putting a lot of pressure and a lot of expectation on those local officials to basically have contingency plans for everything from a missing power cord to a sustained attack from a world power. Now, we've all heard stories of problems in the election process, in the vote counting process. What tends to be the communities that are most affected? Who are some of the people that bear the brunt of the problems in the system? Well, unfortunately, I think they are going to be those traditional communities that have seen voter suppression tactics used in the past. And I think this is one area where it's almost outside of the bounds of the technology specifically because the technology is just a tool. So the the same technology that can be used to empower voters can also be used to break down the ability for voters to be able to make sure that their vote counts correctly. And that's where it goes beyond a a technology policy discussion. It's actually a social discussion. So that's why my work is focused on making sure that elections are operating not only correctly but securely. So that way policymakers and community stakeholders can have those really tough discussions about how do we address some of these historic voter suppression 
efforts to make sure that voting is fair for everybody. And I'm particularly interested in some of those minority communities in urban areas, as well as rural voters and even tribal communities that have their own elections to run that may not get the attention from outside organizations that might be useful for them to have. So when we look at something like, you know, the the Georgia election here in the U.S. was particularly contentious on this. And uh, there are, you know, it's a long history of voter disenfranchisement there, and, and, and that sort of carries into the current narrative. How much of that kind of story do you think is about the sort of classic, as you say, social causes, which is, okay, there are these black and brown communities that, that people are trying to disenfranchise or, you know, suppress the vote in. And how much of that is infrastructural, where just the physical infrastructure and technology of voting machines is part of the obstacle? Well, they certainly go hand in hand. And I think in the case of Georgia, um, there were some social pressures that were taking advantage of infrastructural weaknesses. Um, You know, what we don't see in Georgia are voter verified paper audit trails. So these electronic machines don't have a paper trail that people can go back and actually perform an audit on. And so that's a, a very convenient way to not be able to have a higher level of accountability that tends to work in favor of one group over another. And so I think as we address some of these infrastructure issues, um, then we'll really be able to get down to the difficult discussion of addressing the social issues. You know, when it comes to uh, somewhat controversial infrastructure issues like voter IDs and voter registration databases being cleaned up, I tend to err on the side of let's make sure that we have accurate information in these databases because I believe that that is an empowering tool to be able to have a state official and a local official say, yes, we are absolutely certain that we have minimized voter fraud because we want to make sure that everyone in our community votes, but that they only vote once. So we're paying a lot of attention to being able to have voting infrastructure that we can trust, but what's the scope and scale of the problem? In any given state, take a state like Georgia where everybody's looking and paying attention right now, how many jurisdictions do we think there's an issue with trust in the technical infrastructure of voting? Is it most of them? Is it just a handful? Do we know? I think it's challenging to pin down a number because Voter confidence is hard to measure. You certainly will hear about it when people don't have confidence in the process. And I think it's just like any other infrastructure. No one ever calls up the city council and says, man, I really enjoy driving on that road. It's nice and smooth. People complain when there are are the potholes. And so I think what we're seeing now is that people are able to voice their concern very quickly, especially using social media whenever they run into any kind of an issue on election day. You know, the majority of Americans are using old equipment, and I think that it's really up to the states to make sure that they are adequately funding the maintenance and replacement of equipment before it gets too old. We shouldn't be using voting machines that are so old that they're breaking down on Election Day. We need to get ahead of the problem with a greater focus on making sure that this equipment is purchased, maintained, and updated on a more regular basis so that way states aren't looking to the federal government for these quick fixes, uh, you know, once a decade when there's a catastrophe. Let's talk about the cost of having voting systems we can't trust. So if somebody's vote isn't counted, maybe the election results are shifted, what is the price that's paid by an individual, by a community when their voice isn't heard? Disenfranchisement. It's, It's quite simple. It comes down to what does it mean to have 
a level of confidence that you are actually being represented at all levels of government. So if an individual or, or a group in a community doesn't feel like they're being represented, um, then they're not going to trust the services that they receive. They're going to know that somehow their perspective isn't being recognized and that their needs aren't being met. And it's so difficult to come back from a situation where someone feels like they are not being represented. Um, that's why, again, my goal is to make sure that people have a high level of confidence in the operational side of the voting process. So that way they can have those discussion with the representatives and feel like the social side is being addressed. Um, the way that I see it is that we should be moving toward the point where we want more people to vote. I don't think that we're going to get to a point where we can have internet or mobile-based voting anytime soon, but it's going to happen eventually. So in 10 to 15 years, are we putting the policies in place? Are we putting the technologies in place that would be able to handle potentially doubling voter turnout? And that could be very impactful for groups that have traditionally not seen high levels of voter turnout in their communities. So when you talk about, you know, we have to build confidence in the infrastructure in order to be able to tackle the, the other social issues around, you know, voting access, how does your work tie into that? Like, what, how does the work you do day to day help us fix these kinds of problems? Well, at CDT, we're focused on making sure that local election officials have the cybersecurity training that they need. So the idea that local election officials are defending themselves appropriately by using techniques like two-factor authentication or password managers, so that way they're not influenced by any malicious actors, that ensures that voters are actually protected as well. Because if a local election official has the voting database on their laptop and they take that laptop to the coffee shop and go on the open Wi-Fi network and that information is stolen, the voters are put at risk. And so I, I think that anytime there are any security lapses that can be exploited, they need to be addressed. And local election officials are really the ones that should be getting the majority of not only the awareness, but also the training to prevent some of those vulnerabilities from happening, not only on those internal databases, but also on the voting machines themselves. Because if they can show that, yes, they are aware of these potential issues, but that they put up additional defenses, then voters will naturally be more confident in the process and it will be less likely that stories of vote changing or voter fraud will be able to spread as quickly because there will be accurate information out there to dispel it. If I'm an individual voter and I'm concerned about the trustworthiness of voting in my local precinct, what are the things I can do? Who should I reach out to? Definitely reach out to your local election official and find out what their plan is. It should be pretty straightforward to get an answer from a local election official about the kind of equipment that's used and the kind of processes that are put in place to make sure that everyone has access to their polling location on election day and even before election day. You know, there are options for people to be able to vote by mail or even vote early so that way they don't have to show up at a polling location on election day in some of those communities and they can actually verify that their mailed-in ballot was received correctly. Well, that sounds like good advice for all of us to follow through on. Maurice, thank you for joining us on Function. Thank you very much, Neil. I appreciate it. 
That's it for this episode of Function. Next week, we are going to take a break for the holidays, but don't worry, we are going to be back with a brand new episode on New Year's Eve, just in time for your year-end giving. We're going to talk about apps that help you be your most generous and charitable and tax-deductible self. We're talking to the developers behind apps that help the people in the most need, the human utility and abolition. Function is produced by Bridget Armstrong. Our associate producer is Maurice Cherry. Nishat Kurwa is the executive producer of audio for the Vox Media Podcast Network. Our engineers are Srinivas Ramamurthy and Jarrett Floyd. Our theme music was composed by Brandon McFarland. And big thanks to the team at Glitch. You can follow me on Twitter at at Anil Dash. And you can find the show at glitch.com slash function. You'll want to check it out. There's full show notes, transcripts, even little apps that are related to each episode. And if you're liking what you're hearing on Function, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend to check us out. It really does help. Thank you for doing so. And do remember to subscribe to Function wherever you listen to podcasts.